Uh, Lynn and I uh, traveled to Minnesota during the Christmas or New Year's, in between Christmas and New Year's, for uh, our nephew's wedding up there as well. And so it was great to be with family up north. And uh, we traveled back last Sunday, and, and we were able to worship with you online and hear Kelly preach and hear the, uh, the students lead in worship, and we were able to worship in our car with you. And so it was great to see Kelly preach. And then afterwards, uh, after that, we listened to the recording of uh, our daughter-in-law, who is the youth director at Community Covenant Church in Lenexa, Kansas, and she preached as well. And uh, so it was great to see the youth pastors preach. As Kelly said, uh, in between Christmas and New Year, it's always the youth pastor Sunday because we don't want to do it, you know. So, but Kelly did a great job and so did the youth team. As we're coming back from Kansas, uh, from Minnesota, we're n- nearing Kansas City and we lis- we're listening to the Chiefs-Bengals uh, game on the radio and we wanted to get there to watch the second half you know, at a restaurant with our family members, our kids. And so we were able to do that. But when it just so happened that when we're driving to Kansas City, who does Kelsey date? Who does, who does Kelsey date? What's her name? Taylor. Oh, Taylor Swift. We were following Taylor Swift, my wife and I. And, and we're following her for, we're following Taylor Swift. <laughs> I haven't, caught, I haven't got a picture of it there. That was pretty awesome. We knew the Chiefs would win. No, I didn't take that picture. I saw it on the internet, as you probably did as well. But Our new sermon series comes from 1 Thessalonians. Uh, it's entitled, Strengthening New Believers in the Faith. Uh, and before we launch into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to teach you how to say Thessalonica because I messed it up every time in the first service. Thessalonica, say it with me. That's hard to say, isn't it? Thessalonica. Um, Anyway, uh, context. We we could read about the church in Thessalonica in chapter 16 of Acts, where the Apostle Paul was on a second missionary journey, and he felt compelled to go to unreached uh, places to establish churches there and preach the gospel. And Paul's intention was to do so in the province of Asia, which would have been Bithynia, Mysia, and Troas, according to the next the map. Can, can I get the map up there? Oh, never mind. We'll wait for that. Um, anyway, yeah, there it is. See Asia there on the right? And, and Troas and, and uh, those cities going up to Philippi would have been the province of Asia. And then over across the sea would have been Greece. And, uh, but in Acts 16, we read that Jesus wouldn't allow him uh, to preach there. He closed doors there. And I'm sure it would have been kind of frustrating because Paul's out here on his missionary journey wanting to make a difference and establish churches and preach the gospel. But God kept closing doors on him. And then we read in Acts 69 that during the night, Paul had a vision of a, a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia, which is Greece, and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so in in the map again, if we go to the map, Isabel again. And so you can see uh, he made his way up to Philippi first. 
first to Philippi, where Paul was used to heal this girl who was from demon possession, which enabled her to predict the future, fortune teller, and her owners would make a bucket load of money because of her gift, if you will. But once she got healed, she stopped telling the future. But she was delivered from that demonic presence. And uh, Paul and Silas, as a result, were arrested and they were beaten and chained because they were not good for the economy in Philippi. And so God uh, put Paul and Silas in jail, and you know the story where they're in chains in prison, and they were singing hymns to God after being scourged and whatnot. They're singing praises, and they were miraculously delivered by God. And as a result, they left Philippi, and they uh, walked westward on the Roman road for 90 miles just south to Thessalonica there. Uh, Thessalonica was a self-governing port city in Greece, and it was like 100,000 residents there, which is significantly bigger than McPherson. So even back then, there were big cities, um, second biggest city besides Athens in Greece at the time. And today, the city still exists and is still the second greatest city or biggest city at 385,000 residents in the historic center, but it goes by the name of Salonika. Um, only second to Athens. 878,000 people in the region of Thessalonica today um, would consider themselves Thessalonians, if you will. And there are at least 300 churches, Christian churches, that were, are established there today as a result of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, when the Jewish leaders discerned that um, they were losing influence because Paul went into a new, this new area of Thess Thessalonica, and he did what he always did. He went into the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, and he would preach the gospel there. And he did so, we're told, in Acts, three separate Sabbath days. And some Jews believed, but a great number of Gentiles believed, and even a few prominent women believed as well. And so there was great success in response to the gospel in Thessalonica, but the Jews got very jealous and afraid. They discerned that they were losing influence, and so they formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city, accusing Paul and Silas of pr promoting another king other than Caesar. And so they were run out of town again. They are forced, uh, after being there only three weeks to three months, there's a debate as to whether just three weeks or three months, but they were there for a short time. And then Paul, Silas, Timothy, they journeyed on to Berea and Athens, they got kicked out of both places there, and then they finally landed in Corinth, down south there on the left. They finally landed in Corinth where Paul was successful at planting a church there, and they remained for a year and a half in Corinth, establishing and encouraging those believers there. It was in Corinth that Paul received word from Timothy that the new believers in Thessalonica were in fact thriving because he was worried about them. But they were remaining strong in the faith. However, they did have some struggles. And they had especially some questions and some doubts, even in the midst of their faithfulness. And so Paul would answer these questions in his letter to Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, as he wrote it from Corinth. First question was about suffering. The Thessalonian believers asked, how should we think about persecution? Uh, why is God allowing us to suffer? Um, and that's an age-old question. 
You know, we still ask that when we suffer today. God, why? Why do you allow this? The second issue that they were dealing with was, were lifestyle issues. How should we then live? How are we expected to live as believers in Christ? And there was debate as to how they should live. And the third question that Paul addressed was a question concerning the end times. Are we living in the end times? He was, they were even asking back then, as we are today. Will Jesus return as he has promised soon? Because after all, we're suffering. Jesus, where are you? Please come. And what happens to believers when they die before Jesus' return? Will they, what will happen to them? Will they miss out on heaven? And so they didn't have comprehension of, because they were new believers. They were babes in Christ. Well, I had the privilege of leading an unbeliever to Christ by the name of Jerry. And when I was about 20 and he was like 18, he came from a really broken home and his parents were into drugs and alcohol and he was as well. And, and so he's just really lost. Uh, but he joined our fellowship in Wesleyan Church, young adult fellowship that I was a part of as a volunteer for the youth group, along with the youth pastor there. And, and so he, we just embraced him. And, but after about two or three weeks, I asked Jerry, hey, Jerry, so what are you learning? What are you reading in the Bible? And Jerry's response was, I'm, re I'm in this Le 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 Leviticus. I said, what the heck are you reading that? I said, well, I, what do you expect? I started at the beginning, and now I'm at Leviticus. I said, well, why didn't you read the Gospels? He said, well, you gave me the book, and where do you start reading books? You start in the beginning. And I realized at that time, I had an aha moment that I had, God had used me to lead Jerry to Christ, but I didn't have any follow-up with him. I didn't encourage him. I didn't give him any guidance or direction. It's as if I gave birth to a newborn person in Christ. And then kind of stuck him in the corner and said, well, good luck, buddy. Ho hope you do well. And did my own life, you know. If you catch him, you got to clean him, is the thought. I, I had no idea of discipleship, that concept. Um, and, and so Paul understood the responsibility of pouring into the lives of the new converts to help them grow to spiritual maturity. And, and so must we. But you might be thinking, but, but I'm no Paul. I'm not an apostle. I've never led anyone to Christ before. I, I don't know how to disciple people. Well, that may be true, but we can all encourage young believers in the faith, can't we? We can all make an impact by our words, by our actions, by our attitudes. And we will do so when we demonstrate these two things, and this will be the remainder of the outline, if we simply care for them, and secondly, if we believe in them. Those two things. We can all make a difference. And we can all be obedient to go make disciples. And notice how Paul set out to encourage then the new believers in Thessalonica by letting them know how much he cared for them. Even though he barely knew them, he cared for them deeply. He said in Thessalonians 1, 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Well, there's no better way to care for a kid than to pray for them, right? To pray for anyone. No better way to care for someone. Um, Billy Graham once said, Heaven is full of answers to prayers for which no one ever bothered to ask. 
God chooses to respond and act according to our prayers because we're his body. He's our head, and he works in conjunction and partnership with us. That's how he's chosen to work in our world. Watchman Nee put it this way, our prayers lay the track down on which God's power can come. Like a mighty locomotive, his power is irresistible, but it cannot reach us without rails. And our prayers lay down those rails. A prayerless Christian life is like a hamster on a wheel. We're busy, 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 losing, exerting energy, but getting nowhere. So Paul's entire letter expresses how he cares for these new believers, even though he just met them some months earlier. And how did he show that he cared? By how he gave to them sacrificially, his sacrificial choices. First uh, Thessalonians 2.7, he says, Just as a mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. I'm giving of my life to you. I'm sharing, I'm expending everything that I have and am to you by my choices. I'm caring for you. And then, not just like a mother, but in verse 11, he said, For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. By encouraging, giving direction, that's something I did not do with Jerry at the beginning of his salvation. Um, And then Paul said, we care by sharing the gospel in his words, reminding them of who they are in Christ, first of all, in verse 4 of chapter 1. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with the with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. In other words, Paul said, hey, you are loved by God. Do you know how much you're loved? And you are chosen by God. He's chosen you. And you are also a changed person by the power of the gospel. You are a new creation. And he spoke those words to to, to them after speaking the word of the gospel to them. A college basketball player at Wheaton College, where I, I attended college, um, became, we were friends, acquaintances. He was really tall, like Jer- Pastor Jeremy's height. He was like really GQ looking, like Pastor Jeremy, shit, Jeremy, you know. He was uh, really talented, like Jeremy, and he was athletic, like Jeremy. So he was a lot like Jeremy. Um, and, uh, and I had huge respect for him, like I do for Jeremy, uh, but uh, I asked him one time, you know, he, well, he, I asked him, man, you, you must have had like a stellar career because you're an awesome athlete and you must have been an incredible witness for Christ in high school. And his response was, uh, not really. He said, I suspect that when people looked at my life, now looking back, I suspect that they saw that I was pretty smart. I, I was pretty good looking, I guess. I was a great athlete. I was kind. I came from a well-to-do family, and I suspect they thought, if I had all of what he had in qualities, then I too would be happy. But I never shared my faith with anyone. He used all of his gifts and talents to bring attention to himself, he realized, when he was in college. And I think that we need to be intentional about sharing uh, the gospel with people, don't we? 
Um, otherwise, they'll just assume, well, of course, I'd be happy too if I had their income or their job or their hair or whatever they had, you know? We need to explain the gospel message. What's the gospel message? Well, Paul explained it clearly in 1 Corinthians. He said, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Charles Spurgeon was one at, asked, he was once asked to explain in a few words what the Christian faith was all about in this great order of God's word. He responded, I will put it in four words for you. Christ died for me. That's the gospel. And if people ask, well, what does that mean? Then you can explain a little more why he had to die for us. And that's the power of the gospel. Paul says, I preach nothing but the gospel that Christ's death and resurrection. That's, that's where the power is. Um, secondly, um, not only can we care for new believers, but secondly, um, Paul strengthened and encouraged new believers by affirming their strengths. In other words, saying, we see you, we notice you, we, uh, we admire you, we see the potential in you, look at, look at all that God has and is doing in you and through you. When I was a youth pastor, I taught lessons a couple times a week, and when I was asked, I once asked one of my committed student leaders, after being in Salina for about eight months, I asked him, his name was John as well, I said, John, so tell me the truth, am I, how am I connecting with my messages and, and with my, you know, to the youth? And his response was, well, you're doing okay, uh, but here, here's the truth. You tell us everything that's wrong with us and everything that's wrong with the world, but you never tell us how to fix it or how to grow. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I had an aha moment. And I remember it to this day. And it informs how I preach, I think, in many respects today based on that word. I was causing them to feel shame and discouragement even before they left the building because of all the things they should be doing and they're not doing, and this is what God expects and intends for us, and on and on. And I thought, oh, my word. Paul communicated to the new believers all that they were doing right. He graced them rather than shamed them. He opens the letter with, I always thank God for you. In verse 3, we remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he opens. He says, I see you. I see your faith will work. The Thessalonian believers did not have some kind of emotional response to the gospel uh, like we would have if we go to a camp or retreat and then come home unchanged. Paul says, no, it's been reported to me that you believers continue to serve Christ faithfully and what you're doing by way of serving him. And I see that. And I got to tell you, we on staff often talk about all who serve here in our church and in our communities as well. Um, how we are the light of Christ, not only in the walls of the church, but in our communities and all the many ministries and all who expend energy caring for people. And we do see you. We know that there are hundreds of people and that's what makes this church healthy because of you. And so thank you. Um, Paul said, I see your loving labor, your acts of kindness as well. 
You know, when I was hurting a couple of years ago, I took a sabbatical for a few months after COVID. Um, and, but I was the recipient of a lot of cards from you. And I still have that stack of cards and a lot of messages saying, we're praying for you, Pastor. Uh, rest up. You know, just words that breathe life into me when I couldn't experience or feel life. And that was what this loving labor means. It's simply an act of kindness. It differs from the first word, um, faithful work. It's an, simply an act of kindness. We can all do this. And, and by the way, take this moment just to express the, our gratitude and humility once again to receive the gifts, uh, love offering that you gave to us on staff. I mean, you give above and beyond uh, what you give in your weekly offering or monthly offering, you gave a love offering to us. And, and so, again, with gratitude, we recognize that and with humility, um, how much you give to mission and ministry of the church and even above and beyond. Paul said, I see you're embracing hope. You continue to live faithfully even in the face of great opposition. And Jesus said, you will experience opposition if you follow me. And Paul reminded them of that. Jesus said, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And this is why the world hates you. The world doesn't understand us. Because the truth is a lie and the lie is a truth in our culture, right? And when we live for the truth of God's word... It's in total contradiction to what the world oftentimes uh, teaches. And so we're hated because Jesus said, expect it. It's never been any, it's always been this way. And like Jesus, Paul taught his believers in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Paul, Silas, Timothy, they only lasted for three weeks there, or three months, and they left the believers behind to experience severe suffering, which has been the case for many, many believers around the world um, who live in countries like that. And Paul said, I see also your great purpose, your great purpose. Not only are you new creations and changed by the power of the gospel, but you have been changed for a new purpose, and namely to carry on the work of Christ on the earth. Paul modeled this for us, uh, for them, in the short time he was with them. Paul said, you know how we lived among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. So they, in the short time he was with them, he modeled what it looked like to be a sold-out Christ follower. And many today claim they believe in Jesus and they have eternal life and that, oh, praise God, I've got eternal security and I wait for him to come back. But they have no clue what their purpose is on earth, what their specific God-given purpose is on earth. And it's our job as a church to help people explore and discover what that purpose is. We all have something that's very significant, but we all also struggle with self-doubt, and we don't measure up, and we lack vision, we're insecure. Let them do it. They're more gifted. Oh, no, I can't disciple. I can't pour into people. Let the teachers do that. Let the parents do that. I, I don't know what to do. Um, but we have to help others discern 
what their calling is by believing in them. I remember the day that a youth pastor in that Wesleyan church back when I was 20 said, man, you're going to make a, a great youth pastor. And I thought, you th- what? Th- this youth pastor was a he was over like 150 youth, and, and he's phenomenally gifted. And he said, you're going to make a good youth pastor. And I said, oh my gosh, it's the first time someone spoke a word like that into my life. And as a result, I'm in the ministry today. We can all do this when we see the potential in others. So Paul let the believers know that he saw great purpose in them. In verse 7, he said, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, and the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your your faith in God has become known everywhere. These young believers, he's saying, your faith is becoming known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. Paul's saying, you don't need me. Heck, God's using you guys. They... They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for the Son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead. Um, and so it's a, Paul says, the Lord's message rang out from you. It was like a trumpet blast. That's what that means, ring out. It was like a trumpet blast became very immediately apparent to people that your lives have been completely transformed because you turn from these false little metal idols that, you know, you offer sacrifices to in the Greek culture, thousands of them, and you turn to the one true living God, and it was so foreign to people that it was so dramatic of a transformation that they said, you believe in a personal God? These idols were not personal. They were based on Zeus and, and, you know, other mythical gods like that. Those were those types of gods who got angry, who had no personal relationship, no um, whatever, But, but this personal God totally transformed their lives and their faith became a powerful testimony all around the world to everyone. We see that in you. That's God's purpose for us. God has a purpose for each one of us. I'll end with this story by Glenn McDonald, my favorite author, um, pastor, Presbyterian pastor. He told about Lewis and Clark and how they traveled from St. Louis to the Pacific Ocean in 862 days from 1804 to 1806, and they helped open the door to the American West as we know it. And there's only one single artifact in southern Montana that's been, that remains from Lewis and Clark. It's near the banks of the Yellowstone River, and it says, W. Clark, July 25th, 1806, carved in the side of Pompey's Pillar, which is now a national monument today. That's the only thing left about uh, artifact left. I used to collect a lot of things like coins and presidential buttons and all sorts of things, pop caps. And, you know, I collected them and to pass them on. But, but they had nothing to pass on except for this. And what did Jesus pass on to us by way of artifacts? Is there anything that we could go to a museum and say, this belonged to Jesus? There's nothing. The only thing he left behind are three things. His teaching... And it was oral tradition written down in writing like this into a written tradition. So we have his teachings. The second thing we have is his Holy Spirit. He said, what I've left you is way better than an artifact or carved anything of evidence. It's my Holy Spirit, my presence. And the third thing he's left behind 
would be you and me. He left behind us to be a witness of his life on earth. And this is how uh, Glenn McDonald concludes. He says, it may seem incredible, but what Jesus left behind as evidence that he is really alive, it just happens to be you and me. But take heart, he left behind his Holy Spirit too. And God's Spirit is ready and willing to give us all the power we need to impact others for Christ. We have a great purpose. He left behind the great commission to us uh, to go make disciples in all the world. He's left behind this purpose to pour into others who are younger or newer believers than us. And everywhere we look, there, there are those people who fit that category, right? And like Jesus, Paul was intentional about encouraging the new believers in Thessalonica by conveying his care to them, simple, and by affirming their strengths, just saying, we believe in you, man. We see great potential in you. Whose life can you impact this week? As you pray about it, as we go to God at the table here, go to Jesus as he invites us, pray, who can I impact for Christ? Who can I touch with a word of encouragement? Who, who can I touch with even praying for them or the gospel and the number of ways that we can care? Um, who can I do so? And when we do that intentionally, then we're being obedient to God's great commission to go make disciples. So Lord Jesus, we come to you now and um, as we prepare for the table to meet you and continue to listen to you as uh, we, we obediently partake of your table, and commune with you. We ask God that by your spirit in these closing minutes of this service that you continue to speak to us and impress on our hearts and minds what action steps you'd like us to take, Lord, so that we can really experience our purpose and the joy that you're calling us to, Lord, whether we know it or not, Lord. Pray that you continue to make us a powerfully impactful church, a body of believers here. In Jesus' name, amen.